Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Aji, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so Aji and I are actually catching up for the, the second time. We did have a chance to chat back in December at NIPS, but wanted to you know get caught up on all of her latest work, including a paper that she's got accepted to the ICML conference. Uh, so Aji, before we dive into all that, why don't you talk a little bit about your uh, background and how you got involved in uh, machine learning research uh, from a statistical perspective? Yeah, so I started with machine learning pretty early. I did my undergrad in France at Telecom Paris Tech, where, where I specialize in statistical learning theory. There they call it uh, Théorie de l'apprentissage statistique. So my background is in a mix of uh, math and CS. After my second year at Telecom, I had the opportunity to go to Cornell for an exchange program, which I did and worked more on the stack side there. And after Cornell, I decided that I wanted to find a meaningful application of statistics. So I went to the World Bank and worked on building models for assessing market and counterparty risk with the vision that if I do my job well, then the World Bank is going to keep its triple A rating and uh, poor countries will be able to get loans at very low rate because they don't have access to the market. So I did that for a bit more than a year. And then I started my PhD at Columbia um, around 2014, August 2014, to, to be more precise. And yeah, I've been working on the statistics department ever since. Okay. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that work at the World Bank and the types of models that you were building there? Yes, there's different ways we were using uh, stats to assess risk. There's models for value at risk. There's model for uh, potential future exposure. All these models basically uh, tell the World Bank what are the risks if they enter in a financial uh, agreement with a counterparty. Those counterparties are, for example, the ones in the financial market. And if they are able to um, assess the risk in entering into that financial transaction, then they'll be able to not incur any defaults from their counterparties. And they will be able to keep their AAA rating, which they are being evaluated on, I believe, every year by Standard & Poor's and other like Fitch and more. There are different shops that assess rating for these types of institutions. And and keeping the triple A rating is key because then they can get these rates at they can get this money from the market at very low rates and also lend money to poor countries at even lower rates. So they are acting like an intermediary between poor countries and the financial market. Okay. So my work was to um, assess value at risk and potential future exposure for the World Bank. What were some of the data sources upon which you were building those types of models? Those were internal internal data sets. Okay. And so, yeah, the, there is a repository where they store every, every transaction they have, either with the poor countries that they lend money to and also to the transactions they have with the financial market institutions. Okay. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. And... 
so then you uh, went over into your PhD program and what's the defining thread that is guiding your research on the PhD? I like working with probabilistic graphical models and I like also working with neural networks because I think they are very flexible. And I like applications involving sequential data because I think there's a lot of challenges in modeling sequential data. You need to account for the fact that they can be high dimensional. You need to account for all the dependencies in the data. And I find that uh, interesting from a scientific point of view. So that's mainly what's guiding my research right now, finding ways to improve learning with sequential data. And I've looked at things like context representation, regularization, and scalable learning with variational inference. Okay. And the the paper that you have accepted at ICML is focused on one of those areas, regularization in particular. Yeah. Maybe we can start by having you talk a little bit about regularization generally and different techniques for doing it uh, and kind of what, you know, what kind of results you've seen applying traditional regularization to RNNs. And then, you know, we can talk a little bit about this new technique. Yeah. So recurrent networks are the main family of models for sequential data, and they tend to be very flexible. They tend to have high capacity because when you have, for example, text, you have the recurrent neural network that represent text as um, using a hidden state. And basically you project each word in your data into that low dimensional space. And that low dimensional phase, you also use it to do prediction for the next word that you're going to observe. And those parameters, those weight matrices that you use to do these project, projections used to be very high dimensional. And so you end up easily with models that are that have very high capacity and that tend to memorize data. And so it becomes important to find ways to regularize those models. And the paper that I'm going to present at ICML lies in the line of work that use noise injection as a way to regularize these models. Dropout is one, one very famous noise injection regularization technique. And what we are proposing with noising is an alternative to dropout that does the noise injection in a different way. Uh, so maybe talk through how dropout works as a, a baseline for starting to think about this problem. So in dropout for recurrent neural networks, you would, let's take the LSTM, you would multiply, let's say you have your current observation, your current word, XT, you would have to multiply that observation with some Bernoulli noise, and you would also have to multiply your hidden state with some Bernoulli noise, and you will condition on that noise observation and noise hidden state to compute your new hidden state before predicting the next word. And then practically what that means is that you're essentially uh, forgetting or or not using some of the weights or zeroing out some of the weights. Yes. Is that right? Yes. It's equivalent to basically, yeah, like you say, zeroing out some of the weights. So you are reducing the capacity of the network in doing that, which is essentially what regularization is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what's different about the approach you're proposing in the Noisen paper? In the noise in paper, the motivation was that we want to do regularization 
while still keeping the properties of the model we are regularizing intact, in the sense that we want to regularize an LSTM while not altering the LSTM's properties. And we define that in with the term unbiased noise injection. And so the way unbiasedness works is that if you take the conditional expectation of any hidden state in your sequence, in your uh, sequential representation, then you recover the hidden state of the underlying RNA you are regularizing, and you don't get that with dropout. Uh, and so in what way does dropout, in what way is it biased or does it not preserve this unbiased property? It's because the, it's because of the way you are injecting the noise. So in noising, we compute the hidden state before doing prediction as usual, but we multiply the final hidden state with noise. In dropout, you would multiply the noise with the data and the previous hidden state, and you condition on those to compute your new hidden state, which uses some nonlinearities. So if you do expectation of that hidden state, you wouldn't recover the previous the underlying hidden state because of the nonlinearities. Whereas in noising, we compute everything. We condition on the previous observation and the previous hidden state and compute the new hidden state. And before we use that hidden state for prediction, we multiply it or add some noise to it, such that when you take its expectation, you recover the underlying hidden state. And we found that to be very useful in regularizing these LSTMs. Is it fair to simplify this as saying that dropout adds a noise uh, before calculating the hidden state and yes. noise in uh, adds the noise after calculating the hidden state, and in doing that, it doesn't bias the the network. Yes, that's a good summary of what the difference is. You know, you talk about in your paper some uh, performance improvements. I'm I'm curious, you know, in your use of the term, you know, biased, have you identified like more qualitative differences between the the way these two regularization methods perform beyond just the performance? Are there observations you can make about the way dropout affects the results of a network? Yes, we have not we have not looked at the qualitative differences, but uh, one thing that was interesting in that paper was that given under the unbiased noise injection definition, we consider we can consider actually an LSTM that's regularized with dropout as a new model, as defining a new model class for sequential data. And we apply the noise in regularization on top of that. Okay. And we also found improvements. We didn't, we didn't unfortunately do any qualitative um, comparison between dropout and noise in. And I think that would be an interesting thing that I should look at next. Could you elaborate on that, that last comment you made, though? On dropout as defining a model class? It sounds like what you're saying is that, and you hinted at this earlier, uh, that dropout, uh, and maybe this is comes directly from changing the, the expectation of this hidden state, but you can think of uh, LSTM with dropout as almost its own class of model, whereas yeah. noise in applied to an LSTM it sounds like you're saying preserve some fundamental LSTMness or some fundamental thing. Yes, in the sense that the expectation of your noisy hidden state is the same as the hidden state of the thing you're regularizing under strong unbiasedness. Are there other things that you learned about applying regularization to LSTMs and RNNs in the process of exploring this noise and approach? 
Yeah, interesting. Usually when you want to regularize a model, you will have to basically use less parameters. Mm -hmm. So one way of doing that in RNN has been to tie the weights of your inputs, the embedding matrix from the input and the embedding matrix from the output right before you do prediction. Okay. That's an effective way of doing it. But another way is in using noise, but using noise wouldn't reduce the number of parameters. It would reduce the capacity of your network, not by reducing the number of parameters, but by reducing the amount that it encodes in the data using noise. So you have this network that's that has a very high capacity while also being regularized because you are injecting noise in the procedure such that the network doesn't try to memorize the data. Got I don't it. know. If yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm following you. And so uh, one question that uh, occurs to me then is, are there implications on the, the computational complexity here uh, in applying, you know, a noise-based approach as opposed to tying your inputs and outputs in terms of the, you know, training time specifically? I'm responding primarily to the you're saying that you have you have access to more parameters when you're using a noise-based approach than with the other approach you described. Yes, what I mean is that you don't have to reduce your number of parameters. You All you have to do is use noise such that your weights will memorize less of the data than usual. Mm-hmm. So in terms of training time, of course, if you have, if I give you two equivalent networks where they both have the same number of parameters, but where one uses noise injection and the other one uses wait time, but they both have the same number of parameters, then the training time will will be comparable. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The only slight difference will be in the time you take to multiply a noise with the hidden state. And right. That, yeah. No, it's not particularly significant. Yeah, 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 exactly. To test this, you tested it against a couple of benchmark data sets. Can you describe the your evaluation process? Yes, we wanted to, because it's a regularization method and because we applied it to language, we used uh, two benchmark data sets in the literature. We used the Pantry Bank and the Wikitext 2 from Salesforce. And so we wanted to assess the method as being a regularization method. So we compared it to the deterministic unregularized LSTM. And we we saw obviously that adding noise helps in regularizing, so you get a better performance as defined by perplexity. But we also compared it to an LSTM, regularized with dropout, to assess the importance of having this unbiasedness. And we found also that it does better when you ensure that your regularization method is unbiased. And we also built on this unbiasedness notion that since dropout is biased, we can consider it as a new model class for sequences. And we also compare to an LSCM regularized with dropout only as the new model and an LSCM regularized with dropout augmented with this noise in regularization. And we also found that that helps too. Mm. Uh, and so uh, just to, to, to back up on the the testing with these two data sets, you basically created an RNN or trained an RNN on these data sets using the, these various regularization methods. And then were you, you know, giving it a word and asking it to predict the next word and using that to, you know, that was your basis for evaluation? 
Yes. Or is it something next else? Word, next word prediction. Next word prediction. Okay. Yes. And then you get the perplexity as a measure of how good your language model is doing. In the paper you talk about, you mentioned earlier uh, Bernoulli noise, but you tested this with a bunch of different noise distributions. Can you talk yes. a little bit about uh, what you saw there? Yes. What we wanted to assess there was let's not only restrict ourselves to Bernoulli and see what the effect is when you use any type of uh, noise distributions, because there are many and they all have different properties. Some have heavier tails than others, some are more skewed than others and, vi- and things like that. So we wanted to assess how that would impact the effectiveness of noising. But what we found was that the only thing that matters from the noise distribution is its second moment, so the variance. Okay. And that you can use any noise distribution as long as you use the same variance, you will get the same performance. And we show that also theoretically in the paper by deriving the actual objective function. And we found that it depends on, yeah, the second moment of the noise. Did you come to any conclusions as to specific either problems or properties of data sets or other characteristics where, you know, this performs better than, you know, say dropout or some other method, or is it, does it appear to be broadly applicable to, you know, whenever you're using an RNN? Yes, actually, yes, it would be, we did, we only looked at text data, but it's applicable to any types of sequence data. And I'm working on extending it on that. I'm also working on extending it to other architectures because ultimately it's not only useful for RNNs because the procedure is applicable to any type of neural network. So you can use this with convolutional neural networks or also feed-forward neural networks. Okay. And how far have you gotten with that? How how easily does it apply to, for example, a CNN? There's actually, there's actually work on at NIPS 2017, the past NIPS, that had something similar to what we are doing in the feed-forward context. But there, what they were using was um, this importance weighting procedure, and they optimized the low bound. We are not using any of that. And and when I say noising is applicable to any type of neural network, it's because what the only thing that it requires is that if you give me a hidden state, which is a low-dimensional representation of your data from any neural network, then I can regularize this neural network by just multiplying that hidden state with noise before using it to do prediction. So in CNNs, it would be, yes, do your usual CNN hidden state computation. And then once you hand me that, I will regularize with noise in by just multiplying it with noise or adding it with noise. So additive or multiplicative noise injection. Are there any challenges to applying this approach? To any uh, uh, to RNNs in particular, or to uh, to any other extending it to other types of networks. No, I. It's actually very. It's actually very simple. And we we didn't. One thing is that you have to choose the variance of your noise distribution. That's the only thing that it requires. And so you will need to do grid search on that because it depends on that parameter. You need to tune the variance of your distribution according to the data you want to fit. And so, yes, that's what, what the one, one disadvantage might be, that you will need to do grid search on that parameter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. One thing that I also wanted to mention is that it has a an ensemble interpretation, like dropout. Dropout is usually interpreted as getting predictions from an infinite number of neural networks. We also found that uh, interpretation with the method. Can you explain that? Elaborate on that interpretation? Basically, when you inject noise and you want to maximize the likelihood, you you are basically marginalizing out all the noise you've injected into the network. And that marginalization, you can look at it as averaging the prediction of many neural networks. And that's basically what ensembling is. Mm. And it's been known traditionally to actually has to actually have regularization effect, which is another explanation explanation for why noise injection does regularization. Right. We also talked about uh, another paper. Uh, this one you presented at uh, ICLR last year uh, on topic RNNs. What was that one about? It was about uh, combining recurrent neural networks and topic models for beta sequence model in the sense that you are able to get the right context at each time step when doing prediction. The motivation for that work was that we found that RNNs and topic models were very complementary. RNNs are very good at encoding the local dependencies in the sequence. So in language that would be syntax, so RNNs are very good at detecting syntax and modeling syntax, but they have a problem when you go further Back in the sequence, they have problems with long-term dependencies because of the usual vanishing, exploding gradients. And what we noticed was that actually we don't need to have an RNN with many time steps because as you go further, the dependencies in text are not sequential dependencies. They are semantic dependencies. And these words in the document are related semantically with because they belong to the same team. And topic models are known as these probabilistic, probabilistic models that can detect teams in data. And so it made sense to use topic models to get the teams and then condition on those when doing prediction with the RNN. And so when you say topic models, are you referring to things like uh, embedding spaces and word to vec and the like or something else? I'm referring to something else. I'm referring okay, so what, to- what, is a, what is a topic model? A topic model, it's like a family of graphical model that takes a bunch of documents and tells you the themes that they discuss. It tells you each document, uh, which topics they discuss, in which proportion, and it tells you what these topics are. So a topic in the topic modeling literature is defined as a distribution over over words, and each document is expressed as a distribution over those topics. Okay. And yeah. And so what you end up with is a distribution over words. That that's your topic matrix, a list of distribution over words, and you also end up with a distribution over topics for each document. Is your distribution of words? Is this? Um, I guess what comes to mind is LDA. Is this something that you might use an LDA to? Yes, to t- that's exactly what it is. Okay. There's, LDA and there's approximations to LDA using neural networks. So these are the neural topic models. Okay. And we use that version in the topic iron paper. We use the neural topic model where you basically represent your document as a bag of word, as in LDA, and project that um, high dimensional bag of word representation using an MLP to get a 
distribution to get a document distribution. Now, what I do in Topic RNN is I represent that uh, document distribution with a Gaussian, and I condition on that in the softmax as an additional bias term, depending on whether I need to predict a word that needs this topic content or a word that does not need the topic content. And how do you determine for a given word whether you need to use the topic content or not? I let the RNN, because they are highly flexible, I let the RNN tell me whether the next word should be a quote-unquote stop words. Those are words that don't need any, that don't have any semantic meaning. Mm -hmm. Okay, so based on stop words? Yes. Okay. So the RNN will tell me whether that the next word needs the topic content or not via binary classification. Got it. Uh, So this this is interesting to me in that it it seems like a, a... an NLP type of application of the idea of, um, I guess, this theme that I've seen in other places where, hey, we've got these RNN or we've got these neural networks. Uh, they're great for, you know, basically approximating any relationship if we throw enough data at them. But, you know, hey, there are also these um, more traditionally determined relationships that we've figured out. Um, you know, so for example, it, it, strikes me as analogous to, um, in robotics, you know, using, a, a a strict neural network approach to go from visual input to motor output, you know, or an approach that combines, uh, the neural network with traditional like control system modeling or something like that. It seems like it's very much thematically, uh, in those kind of along yeah. those lines and, yeah. That's exactly what it is. There's this line of work of trying to combine probabilistic graphical modeling and neural networks. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's an interesting line of work, which I'm working on, because they are very complementary. Like when we are using ease of these frameworks, we are trying to learn from high dimensional data. Right. And neural networks give you a way to design these highly flexible likelihood, whereas graphical models allow you to basically represent the hidden structure you want to learn from data in an interpretable way. Mm -hmm. So you can combine the two together to benefit from the best of both worlds. Right, right. And that that approach is always, um, I always find that uh, compelling, you know, but then I've also talked to folks that, you know, we might describe as uh, deep learning purists that Mm -hmm. say, you know, it's ultimately a waste of time. The neural networks can figure everything out if you throw enough data and compute at them. And I was just curious how, like, if you thought about it like that and how you might respond to that. There are still, there are, that might be true in some context if you have too much compute and you have too much data, but that's not the case for many people. Mm. And, and there are times where you actually care about uh, these latent variables. There are times where you want to look at them. And say, oh, these are this is how these things depend together. Thanks. And most of the time, when you say I can just use a neural net and throw compute and data at it, and it will give me what I want, that's when you only care about performance, about getting the state of the art number. But there are times where you actually use this model to better understand the data you're dealing with, to encode uncertainty, to make help people in decision making understand better their data and everything. And they're just using a neural network to get better performance wouldn't mean much. Mm-hmm. So for you, the the two 
counter arguments are uh, limited resource scenarios and, uh, you know, broadly speaking, explainability and and insight that you're able to get from this trained system. Yes, exactly. Continuing on in the, the topic RNN work, was there any interesting insights in the way that you combined the topic models and the RNNs? Were there different ways that you could have done that, but you, um, you know, went down a specific path or? Yes, there are different ways you can combine that. Actually, the topic RNN work, you can look at it in a more general way and say that what we are trying to do is at the end of the day to model sequence data, you need to have a model to capture the local dependencies. So that's that will be your syntactic model. And then you will have a model that will capture the global dependencies, and that would be your semantic model. And you have also to decide on how you want to combine them. So you have three degrees of freedom with it. You have how to decide on the syntactic, how to decide on the semantic, how you decide on combining them. In mm-hmm. topic RNN, the, the, the idea was so cool and, and um, motivating to me that I tried in for any of those three things, I tried the, the, the simplest thing. So for the syntactic model, I tried an RNN, which was uh, the main thing that was used for sequences. And for the topic model, I used the neural topic model version because those are efficient to learn with. You just project a bag of word representation for a neural network to get a latent representation of the document distribution. And in combining them, I just said, let me use the usual softmax, but add this topic information as an additional bias term. Okay. But you can, you can actually use all these three things in different ways. Mm. And that's what's cool about it, because it somehow defines a new class of models for dealing with these sequences. Did you train these simultaneously or did you train your semantic model and your syntactic model separately? Yes. The cool thing is that you want to define all these three things and the way you combine them in such a way that you can afford joint training. Okay. I, I always prefer joint tra- joint training because then you are letting your model also the ability to decide what what it wants to use from each component. So we did joint training from the topic model and the uh, RNN. We trained the two things together okay. because the whole pipeline is fully differentiable. And how did you evaluate the performance of this approach? The first thing we tried it as a language model. So we say, let's see how it improves on existing language models. So we did for next word prediction where we got good results. But we also said, let's see this as a feature extractor. And we applied it to document classification. More specifically, we applied it to sentiment analysis. So we use the IMDB dataset, which is a bunch of reviews and labels of those reviews, whether they are negative or positive. Okay. And we use topic RNN to extract features from the reviews and use those features in a binary classification model. And we achieved a very nice results, not only in terms of classification error rate, but also in how in how it managed to discover the features for the negative reviews and the positive reviews. So we had this nice clustering of the of the features from the topic RNN of the negative reviews and the positive reviews. And that was very exciting. Interesting. And the, the features in this context would be uh, it was, words like, uh, you know, stinks, horrible, that kind of thing, or something else. The features we learned was that we use the, because topic RNN is a generative model for tech for, for any sequence data, we use the reviews alone and train that as a language model as usual. And we derive the features by taking 
the last hidden state of the RNN component of topic RNN and the document distribution output by the topic model component of topic RNN. And we concatenated them together to say this represents the future for this document. The last hidden state of the topic model RNN and the so you're trying to get the kind of your latent state of both your semantic and syntactic syntactic models and kind of smush them together to yeah. represent some feature? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That, that turned out to be effective at, at telling you where the negative reviews and the positive reviews lie in this data manifold. I don't know if if this makes sense given like dimensionality and stuff like that, but qualitatively what did those features look like did they look like in terms of visualization uh visualization or like is it uh, a one hot encoded you know an encoded vector of like where negative words were identified for negative features and positive words were identified for positive features or something like that or is it something totally different it's something it's at the document level not at the word level ah okay yeah, it's at the document level when you concatenate these two things and project them in two dimension, then you will see a nice clustering of negative documents and positive documents together. Ah, okay. We didn't go at the word level. One thing that's interesting is that the IMDB has a lot of sarcasm on it. So it's actually <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very hard to capture the sentiment just using the review because of that. Huh. So this was this was a cool, encouraging result. And wh- so why do you think that this worked better for presumably it did capture some of that sarcasm? I think the way we use the features, the way we they, we said, let's combine the document distributions as given by the neural topic model and the final hidden state of the RNN. That final hidden state usually captures um uh, you know how when you when you write a review, say, oh, this movie was was the, the actors were great, na 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 na, and then but it sucked because of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the whole sentiment is actually captured in that last part. Okay. So I I am guessing that's why it did well because because you exploit that sarcasm when you actually just look at the most recent um, information. How do you see this work being applied? I think it can be used for any... We looked only at sentiment classification. The the word prediction thing is not a real task. We were just using it to evaluate it as a language model. But I think it can be used for any document classification task. And there are many applications to that. Not only sentiment analysis, but yeah, any document classification, you can use topic RNN to get to get features. It proved to be very effective in the case of sentiment, but you can use it for, for any, any document classification task. Say you wanted to classify documents or like tag documents based on content. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you have to come up with your own feature representation? like, Or would you use this concatenation that you've described, but then do something else to get at the, the last mile of how yeah. you want to classify? Where does yeah. the customization have to take place in order to apply this to another type of classification problem? The general thing is that you will have to use both the the global representation and the local representation. You need both. And from the local representation side, you can decide to use the last hidden state, but you can do anything you want there. You can use an averaging of the different hidden state, or you can use a 
I don't know, like attention. It depends on it depends on what you can do. You can build a classifier on top of on top of topic RNN. I did that actually for medical data, and we found again there a nice clustering of patients according to their diseases. Mm-hmm. And and so yes, the the customization is in how you use the hidden state of the RNN part. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you're working on some really interesting things, and I appreciate you taking the time to share some of them with us. Are there any other things you wanted to touch on? Um, that would be it, unless you have, <laughs> unless you have another question for me. <laughs> no, no, very cool, very yeah. cool stuff. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Aji or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 160. If you didn't hit pause and nominate us for the Podcast People's Choice Awards at the beginning of the show, I'd like to encourage you to jump over to twimlai.com slash nominate right now and send us your love and your vote. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.